Welcome everyone to our NCAA Social Series, episode number 27. I'm Andy Katz, pleased to be joined as I have been almost every week with Dr. Brian Hayline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer. And for this week's episode, we're joined by two new members of the newly formed COVID-19 Medical Advisory Group, Dr. Carly Day, who is a head physician at Purdue University, and Dr. Doug Ackerman, who is an Oregon State Senior Associate Athletic Director, also for sports medicine at Oregon State. Um, so a couple quick things I wanna to get to right off the top, and then we can dive deeper into you know, some of the topics related to fall sports and winter sports. Uh, and I just wanna go right to, the, to what has been addressed to me as maybe the most pressing topic right now in sports, and that is contact tracing. And I wanna go around our Zoom room here and get your opinions on all of this because really as much testing as everyone is doing and we'll get to the protocols, contact tracing can literally decide whether or not a team is going to play uh, for one particular weekend. We're already seeing it this fall or when it comes to basketball, it really could be debilitating for multiple games over course of a two week period. So uh, I will start with you. Uh, Dr. Hainline, um, contact tracing. Where are we in terms of how you can either get around it, test out of it, or how coaches and schools are going to have to manage that going forward? Well, you're right, Andy. It's, a, it's, it's really the most important issue, especially in a sport like basketball, where you have 15 people on a team and, and maybe the inner bubble or tier one is going to be 25 or 30 people, but they all have very, very close contact with one another, much more so than in a sport like football even. So, you know, there aren't enough contact tracers in this country to begin with. So one of the things that's really important for each school, you can train to be a contact tracer and then you actually then report into the local public health authorities. And so the schools, if they train their staff to be contact tracers, they have a much better understanding, boots on the ground about who has been interacting with whom, and, and they aren't acting as independent entities. They still become part of the local public health decision-making. So that perhaps is the most important thing that every school should do is to ensure that there are enough contact tracers to help make the decisions. But I think Carly and Doug, they have a much better appreciation of the nuances of this, you know, when uh, they've seen it with, with uh, you know, how it has to happen in different sports practices. So I'd love to hear their, their take on that. Yeah, go ahead. Start you, Dr. Day, because I mean, this is really, I think, the most pressing issue of even if everyone's negative on your team and one particular player, you know, knows someone who's been hanging with someone who's positive um, and you keep testing negative, how does that affect that team going forward if they have to sit, you know, seven to 10 to 14 days, yet every time they test, they're negative? Yeah, it, it's such a tricky topic, as you can imagine. And one of the things that we struggle with is this, you know, a lot of people have heard the less than six feet for greater than 15 minutes, but that's not a perfect answer. That's just us saying, yeah, there's been some study, old studies that looked at droplets of other viruses, and that's about how far you had to be and about how long you had to be. But it's not like if you're seven feet, you can't get it. And if you're five feet, you're definitely going to get it, right? So the first part is it's just a flaw in trying to figure out who is a close contact. So some of it is you do have to use what's been put out there by 
the CDC and, and the departments of health, but the first flaw is even trying to figure out who is a close contact. Um, no, no one's ever defined it truly scientifically in sports. It's a lot of inferring or trying to figure out if we know how it's spread, what's the best way to guess who's at risk within a sport. So again, even the basic science behind it is tricky before you get into all the complicated parts beyond that. Dr. Ackerman? Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest challenges I think we have in front of us to figure out how to get through a competitive season of any sport without major, major stoppages. You know, the, the, the different county health departments and state health departments are all interpreting how to do contact tracing just a little bit different. And each one of them has a little bit of a different nuance. Um, and, and that will impact each school differently. Clearly all of us and all of our institutions can help with the contact tracing. We, we know the activity that's going on at the university. We know what the standard practice is like and where that high risk contact is going to be. We actually can have access potential to, to video footage where we can sit and go back and actually help with that timing. Um, but it's important to note that the, the CDC and, and many states actually count that 15 minutes as cumulative time over a 48 hour period of, of potential infectiousness. It becomes more challenging in that the contact tracing principles were really designed around a group of people who didn't have frequent testing or even daily testing. And so to try and then um, design a way to contact trace that mirrors or is tied to our testing algorithms is, is certainly a challenge. So that's a great point. Uh, and I think that's where athletics at this level separates. So if you are testing three times a week, or we get to the point where it is actually daily testing, which we hope we will be uh, in November, December, um, what are the chances, and if all three you could answer this, that if you're testing every day or at a minimum three times a week, how much time has to go on to where you can say, yes, I know you were near someone who's positive, but every time you test, you're negative, you can play. What's the timeline for that specifically, do you think, where a coach, an athletic director, a school can feel comfortable putting his team on on the floor for competition or even practice uh, just, you know, when, when he keeps seeing or she keeps seeing negative tests? Yeah, I mean, I would comment, I almost make it more simple than that. So you're talking about if someone's exposed to testing them multiple times, but there's even discussions of someone who has it, that if you're testing every day, the first day that they test and they test positive, is that the first day they're actually infectious? Like, were they actually infectious the day before if they tested negative that day versus the day after where they do test positive? And there's some good science behind that saying that, you know, you're probably catching them before they're infectious if you're testing daily. And so that actually, in theory, could help contact tracing significantly, but you still need the support of your Department of Health. You know, you can't just make those decisions without their support. Doug? You know, the, the other piece about contact tracing is, is then the resultant quarantine period, right? And so the, the current quarantine period is 14 days under the presumption that, that the incubation period may extend out to 14 days before somebody actually becomes infectious. And you could still be testing negative for all that time during the incubation period before you turn positive. Um, you know, I think the 
I think we need in sports to really look strongly at the possibility of, of testing at periods during that quarantine period, looking at the science behind the number of people who actually turn positive when they turn positive and, and maybe come up with a more defined and more prescriptive quarantine period to be related to sports as opposed to general public. So to wrap up the topic, Brian, um, you know, what would be your recommendation? Because uh, I'm hearing it and I'm not, I'm not, you know, a medical person about, you know, if I keep testing negative, my team, no one has it. Uh, but they were in contact with someone that did, or one person was, when can my team practice and play? What will be the advice uh, that uh, this board or, you know, w w would grant to an athletic program? Well, so the advice is, uh, what's the science, which Doug is talking about? And I think sport is going to define a lot of the science of COVID-19. And it's that versus where are we with the local public health officials? And so, Actually, our, our call on Tuesday, uh, just a couple of days ago, um, we the, the most intense discussion was all about quarantine and can we really test out of quarantine? And even though scientifically, we thought that that was really a good possibility, even doing something like testing on days three, five, and seven. And if that's negative, you know, the, the confidence intervals that that person's not gonna be infectious are, are pretty high. So people could agree on that. But the real fact of the matter is that the local public health officials, some are going to say it's 14 days no matter what. The CDC is at 14 days. And as long as you have that, then you can't move into an algorithm where you're going to have some places where you can test out of quarantine and others you can't because the local public health officials are all over the place. And so it becomes a competitive equity issue. So hopefully through all the data we're gathering, we're gonna be able to guide where things go. But right now we're at a place where we have to say, well, it's 14 days because that's where our country is and, and we don't quite yet have the science. All right, well, I appreciate that answer. Um, and that's where we are at this point here in late September. Um, Carly, in terms of the advisory board, um, what do you think outside of contact tracing and quarantining, what are some other real headline issues you think need to be addressed at this juncture as everything keeps changing and evolving, hopefully for the better over the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I mean, obviously testing just comes up every single meeting. It's, it's such a big topic and that is something that evolves. You know, science is slow, but business is fast. People are working hard to develop different technologies to test. So even though we're waiting to figure out the best thing, new, new tests, new technology are coming out every day. And even old tests are getting faster, which helps us. Um, and so that clearly is a topic that, that continuously gets talked about and just evaluating the new technology and figuring out if we think it's you know, feasible financially, if it's feasible logistically. We can't have you know, the sports medicine staff doing testing every day when they need to be taking care of the athletes. So there's a lot that goes into that. Doug? Yeah, I think you got to really add on to that great answer is that we have to really look at the infrastructure and, and also the, the resources and the ability and capacity for all the, the teams across our country playing basketball. You know, you have schools that are in small towns that may not have a large reference lab or a hospital lab that they can get access to. And, and so it may become more difficult for them to be able to accomplish the same kind of testing algorithms or procedures that, that 
we all are going to recommend or deem as what is the minimum level for safety. Um, and I think we have to be cognizant of that and make sure that, that the, the plan put forward takes into account all of those nuances. So Brian, um, let's deal with what the recommendations were. Um, this was from the medical advisory group, you know, pre previewing guidelines for basketball from the Sports Science Institute. Um, three times a week, that's what the recommendation should be for testing for the sport of basketball. And to Doug's point, um, you know, most power schools certainly can accomplish that in some form or fashion, depending on what the tests you're using. Lower level leagues may have a problem with that. So how, how do you how do you get through that? Well, it's it's really a challenge, and 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 it's sort of a metaphor for how do we get through that in our society. I mean, if we really wanted to resocialize from a business point of view, from a school point of view, testing would be widely available and it would be free. I mean, that's how we get our country back, and 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 we're not there. But I think Carly brought up a really good point when she when she mentioned the word feasible. So what really is feasible? So doing PCR lab-based testing is not feasible because we're moving unbelievably yet again into a prioritized basis of, of way of doing testing because we don't have enough reagents in some areas of the country. So what has really rapidly evolved are what's called the point of care antigen test. So it's different than a PCR test and that probably is gonna be really widely available come January. It's important to note that some of the uh, point of care antigen tests, health and human services, they have bought out, uh, you know, even ahead of time, uh, ahead of the production time for these tests, uh, up until about January, but that's when there's probably going to be an explosion. So when we were discussing the three times a week, we had in mind that it doesn't necessarily have to be PCR, it could be antigen, and that was really moving forward to the place that point of care antigen testing will be so widely available, it's going to be the most feasible to do. But getting to the cost right now, even that test is not inexpensive. I mean, rock bottom price, probably the lowest price you could get would be about $23 a test. We know that come January, there's going to be some point of care antigen tests that will be $5 a test. So that will be the game changer. And so right now, it, unfortunately, some schools, they, they can't do the sport the way they would like to because they don't have the infrastructure support to do the testing or they don't have the financial support to do so. And that's a shame. So Carly, Doug, to the, to the other aspect here, like the officials, um, they obviously need to be tested. Um, what about every other person that makes a game work, whether it's the stat people, uh, any uh, essential media to actually broadcast the event, um, operations, what would you both like to see or advise for all those other people that put together an event in terms of how much and when they should be tested? So one of the things I think we really have to look at is um, you know, all of these policies and all of these procedures that we're putting in place are only as good as the weakest link. And so you, you're absolutely right. We have to take into consideration how do we manage the testing of the coaching staff, or the, of the student managers, of the athletic trainers, of if a physician travels, the, the media that surrounds the event, 
Um, and, and I think that does have to be taken into account and we have to make sure that there's appropriate levels of testing that again are reasonable and feasible to, to have a, a good sense that they are not bringing un, uh, asymptomatic COVID into the environment. Carly? Yeah, um, you know, I think some of this is figuring out, you know, where are our priorities? And when we always say, you know, we, we really want to protect the student athletes, their health and wellness. So it's figuring out, A, who is in close contact with these people? You know, there may be people in the past who were in close contact with student athletes who don't need to do that right now, right? So I know, you know, a lot of people are doing media interviews through Zoom, just like we are. And, you know, those are the questions are, are what are the ways that we can protect from unneeded interactions? And then the interactions that are needed, how do we keep them safe? Whether it's we're testing those people or we're figuring out a way to do it space, you know, with appropriate distancing. So it's just thing, people have to get used to doing things a little differently than, than they had been in the past, which sometimes can be tough since, you know, I think a lot of people around sports are creatures of habit. I mean, I guess I was thinking like in a football game and now we're outside for that. Even the the personnel that's holding the, you know, the uh, yard marker, um, you know, where they're standing, players are going back behind them. So there are all these sort of people that we don't always think about that are part of game management. Now you take the event and you put it indoors and there are people and we're seeing what the NBA and the WNBA are doing. Obviously, they're constructing basically these little glass bubbles on the sideline and sometimes they're moving the stack crew to the other side so they're away from the benches but they're still in the building um so how many other you know if we can go start with you brian in terms of you know the game management indoors maybe even leaving windows open or doors which can make it colder uh certainly as we get into the winter months but what are other aspects of an indoor event to you know make the entire event as safe and healthy as possible we start off with the, the large issues first, and that's the ventilation. So ideally, the, the better the ventilation, the filtration systems that, that are in place, that's, that's the ideal thing. So, uh, and that we've actually provided that guidance in, in the last resocialization document that we put out. And then it's the separation. And so um, it's when, in this current document, we talk about tier one, tier two. Tier one are all the people that really interact at a very close level on a regular basis. And those are the ones that are tested three times a week. Tier two are people who are essential to run the event, but they don't have to interact with the tier one individual. So you make certain that they're always separated. So the NBA has done that model with the plexiglass and so forth. And, and that's what's gonna have to be done at every single game. The essential individuals who are not part of tier one, they don't even enter into that space. And, and that's what's key. So that, and so the NBA has done that successfully. Another event that just was completed, the U.S. Open, they had a clear demarcation between Tier One and Tier Two, and and it worked essentially flawlessly. So that's what we're going to have to do going forward. Arlene, Doug, if you comment on that. No, I think this this virus, this pandemic, has forced us to try and take a step back and really think hard about what just was the normal way of doing it. And, and are there some changes that can happen, whether it be, you know, passing out stat sheets, whether it be electronic ways of, of tracking that kind of information, um, how close to people stand benches. I think there's a lot of additional kind of nuances that we can look at and consider in terms of trying to make this a safe environment for our athletes to participate. 
Harley? Yeah, again, I think we, we've sort of said it all, but I, I would say, as we're saying, you know, there are people we think we can keep separate, but officials really are quite intertwined with athletes, both in football and basketball. You know, when we're on the sidelines for football, I would probably meet close contact you know, criteria with a linesman at some time, depending on how much movement there is on the field. So, you know, the officials really are going to be in that tier one and really do need to, we need to make sure that they're not bringing the virus in because they're, they're around athletes, coaches, you know, I think how many times you've seen coaches and referees very closely interact in different ways. So I, I do think it's important to make sure the officials are, you know, tested and, and we make sure they don't have it. So two things related to that, and I want to get, uh, you know, to the expectations of this board, Brian, in a moment. But, um, you know, first off, uh, you know, we have seen already in the NFL, um, there's been a mandate. There have been fines, six-figure fines of individuals and teams for wearing that mask like a chin strap instead of over your nose and mouth. Um, we don't have that ability, you know, at the NCAA to fine people for a regular season game. But what would you like to see from these conferences? And, and Carly and Doug, you're in two high-profile conferences in the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, of seeing, you know, some real strength behind some teeth saying, look, this is what you have to do with that mask if you are not an athlete competing, whether it's a coach or someone that we're just discussing uh, on the side. Carly? You know, it's such a tricky question because I think we make comparisons to professional sports a lot, but they really are a different scenario. You know, our student athletes are still going to classes and a lot of our coaches still have families with them. So even though you're testing, you know, it's important to protect everybody, but the masking issue is so challenging because the issue is, are we saying we've tested everybody and they're negative so you don't have to wear a mask or we've tested everyone you think there's a very good chance that they're negative, but tests aren't perfect. And it'd be nice to make sure we have one added area of protection to avoid that. And there's debate there, you know, even within sports medicine professionals. And this is to be clear in public setting, you know, masks are very necessary. This is a different area where there's testing. So again, it's actually sort of a debated issue to figure out how tightly you need to mask um, because everyone's being tested. Okay. So I like to look at this as an opportunity for our coaches um, and our coaching staff and our athletic departments to be role models and, you know, to, to help the rest of, uh, of our country see that it's okay to wear a mask and that, that there is benefit to wearing a mask. And not everybody's perfect. And there'll be times when the mask comes down because you, you, you're afraid your voice is being muffled and you can't be heard as if you're a coach and, but at the same time, they're educators. The coaches are educators and the coaches um, are, are leaders. And, and I would hope that, that they would be willing to take that on and act appropriately. So in the non-conference, which uh, the NCAA does not legislate in terms of putting the events on, what we're seeing is more likely going to happen in November and early December uh, in men's and women's basketball are these sort of mini pods. I don't know if I'd call them bubbles, but where you go to one site uh, and one of them may be Orlando and everyone comes into one site, you test uh, the officials, everyone, and you stay in the same hotel and you create your sort of controlled environment might be the best way to term it. Uh, and I'm just curious your thoughts on that because you know all your teams may be involved in that. Uh, and Brian, your recommendations through this board 
will certainly be adhered to, especially by these third parties that are organizing all these events. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting concept of the multi-team events. I, I think you, you can move into a one space and you have a much better sense of control over a period of several days. And so I, I do like that concept and it may be less challenging than say, two or three games where you're going to different cities in, in, in one week. So, um, you know, we'll see that's going to come up, but, but I'm optimistic that that can really be pulled off successfully. If you don't mind me chiming in, I think a lot of it comes down to execution. So, and what's the actual plan for testing? What's the plan for travel? Because we know scientifically, let's say you travel and you're exposed to it during your travel, that if we test you when you arrive in the next day, you are gonna test negative. It's actually very, very likely you'll test negative even if you are going to go on and develop COVID-19. And so some of that is how is travel executed, right? And, and were they tested before and after? And there's so many things that really have to be taken into account that you can't have a high-risk exposure, test yourself the next day and feel good that there's no coronavirus around there. I go back again, this, this virus and pandemic allows us to re-examine how we do things. And is this is this a possible way forward? May this catch on and be a mainstay for college basketball in the future? I don't know. Um, it, it could solve several issues as it relates to um, the pandemic and, and COVID and trying to keep people healthy. It may also generate some efficiencies that we may like. And I think we have to, you know, as, as a group, as an NCAA, as a, as a group of conferences and institutions, we have to look at that. That's something that will be a learning experience for, for everybody if we go down that road. So, Brian, and I want to get all of your, your thoughts on this uh, as we get closer to wrapping up here. Um, the expectations of this group, what are they, Brian? I think first it's, it's kind of neat to talk about how the group came together because it's some members of the original panel, members from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, National Athletic Trainers Association, National Medical Association, the Autonomy 5 Medical Group. We had all been working together anyway, and with the formation of this new group, we all came together as one. I think the most important thing that we hope to accomplish is just being really candid and frank about how we make it safe and how do we really pull off sport or can we in the midst of a pandemic that we're still in. And so it's, it's a phenomenal experience because everyone's deeply engaged and I'm 100% certain that everyone really wants to get it right and, and it's a really collaborative group. But then more practically speaking, so we, you know, we have the resocialization of basketball document but now we're quickly moving to say, well, how does that apply to all of the other sports? And so the higher risk sports like wrestling um, or ice hockey, and you know, and then you have your lower risk sports like 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 tennis or or swimming. And so that's going to be the next phase. But also, I'm certain we're going to be bombarded in the next week with a lot of questions. You know, a document comes out, and then there are numerous questions. So the there's going to be a frequently asked questions document where you where you kind of get into the nuance of how 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 things are pulled off. But but basically, it's looking at winter sports and then spring sports and what's the safest way to roll it out. Arlene, Doug, 
Yeah. So, you know, I think there's lots of benefits to having these different minds coming together and it, there's geographic diversity, right? So, you know, there's different rules in different states we have to take into account. There's diversity of the schools we're covering. So, you know, some people are covering Division One, and some are call, covering Division Two and Division Three. Um, I covered a Division Two school for seven years prior to my job at Purdue. So understanding some of the needs of different schools from different divisions. And then there are people with different medical backgrounds. So we have infectious disease experts, team physicians, athletic trainers, and again, they all that bring that collaborative spirit together to try to figure out how to make it happen and how to do it right. And so it's it's just a really great group of people where everyone is willing to listen to other people who are experiencing this in a different way and try to figure out how to make this happen. Yeah, the only other thing I would add um, to both those answers is that it's a, it's a, a group that has enough broad um, representation. And, it affords a lot of opportunity to then go back to the constituents that we work with to get more information, to to gather um, new ideas and bring it back to the group. And so I think it's, it's been very collaborative and I think it's, uh, I think everybody has learned something from a different point of view or something that, that gets brought up during these conversations. And it's been a very rich dialogue and I, I look forward to continuing to be part of it. All right, so I always like to hopefully end a little bit on a high and be optimistic. And last week, Dan Gavin and Lynn Holtzman uh, talking about the basketball seasons, men's and women's, when Division One Council announced the start date of November, 20, of November 25th. Got us all excited. The season's going to happen. Um, and look, with football, we're seeing some successes, some setbacks. It's sort of what we expected, that there would be cancellations, postponements because of this. Uh, obviously, two months from now is a lifetime in this pandemic. We hope it's going to be better, but we don't know. But give me something that's optimistic, Doug, Carly, Brian, um, about why you feel positive, hopeful about the winter sports, especially men's and women's basketball. Doug? We have time to plan and we have you know, our ability to, to put forth a pathway to make this successful. And, uh, you know, I think we still have time as a country to continue to do the right things and socially distance and practice hygiene methods and wear face coverings and help us all out to make sure that we are going to be successful at this basketball season. Yeah, Coach Painter likes to tell our student athletes to win the day. And I, I feel like we're all taking that motto and, you know, everyone's been working hard and every day we have that day to do the best we can to learn the most we can, take care of these student athletes, put together a plan, modify the plan when new data is presented. So I, I think, again, there's just a lot of really dedicated people and we sit down, take it one day at a time. And I'm just convinced that we have a, a wonderful group that can make it happen. And I think the basketball coaches really have a, a very good understanding of what it's gonna take. And, you know, as Doug said, they're educators and they can educate their athletes and say, look, you want to have a basketball season. This is what we have to do. And, and I, I think they're taking that really seriously. The other thing that's positive, you know, Andy, we, we talked about testing for these how many months now. But we really are now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel where there's going to be a lot of availabilities of rapid diagnostic testing. So that's going to be an important part of how this season can be pulled off. Well, there's no question that I think as much as the numbers are up and down, we feel positive that things are moving in the right direction. You know, as we said at the beginning, the contact tracing and trying to test out of that 
is incredibly difficult, especially with what the current CDC guidelines are. No question about that. Um, we'll see if that changes uh, by state by state or nationally uh, in the coming months, coming weeks. Uh, but the other thing I would just say that uh, we've heard many times, uh, we're seeing it in football, which is that it's not going to be a normal sort of equi equitable season. Uh, there are going to be some schools that have setbacks and maybe don't play as many games uh, and than others. And that's just, we all have to accept that, that it's not going to be equal in this particular season. Um, as always, these are incredible, uh, incredibly educational, informational. I appreciate all of your expertise on the subject. Uh, Dr. Carly Day from Purdue, the head physician there. Doug, Dr. Doug Ackerman from Oregon State, Associate, Senior Associate Athletic Director uh, in charge of sports medicine. Of course, Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer. As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all our social series are archived. And as you'll see, uh, Brian and myself have been tackling this topic really since day one when everything got shut down in that mid-March period. So we've been on top of this from the beginning with the help of the expertise of all of your uh, incredible, I, I date myself and say a Rolodex, but your contact list, uh, Brian, has been phenomenal to help us uh, understand this pandemic. Appreciate everyone, stay safe, and we'll talk again next week.